Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. I'm your host and creator, Jimmy, and each week I make a mixtape combining my love of 80s music with memories of growing up in a San Francisco Bay Area record shop. The 1980s will forever hold a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to share the memories and the music with those who experienced life during the decade, as well as anyone curious to learn what it was like to be there, but weren't. So whether you're a returning or a first-time listener, I invite you to relax and reminisce as I create a themed musical playlist comprised of songs from the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s. Last week, I shared my own subjective perspective on songs designed to help kick off a season full of endless sunshine and summertime memories in my fourth episode titled The Start of Summer. That episode, along with others, are currently available to download and listen to on a variety of podcast platforms, including Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, with new episodes available every Wednesday. You can also reach out to me by email at Jeep music podcast at gmail.com. My father used to say that practice makes progress, and I want to acknowledge the generous support and positive encouragement I continue to receive from listeners. I'd also like to give a humble and heartfelt thank you for your support in the progression of this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit follow, subscribe, and like. I'd also greatly appreciate any five-star ratings and or reviews of the podcast, and please tell your friends, family, and anyone in between about Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. Again, thank you for listening, sharing, and supporting as I discuss 80s music, the memories associated with them, and making mixtapes for everyone to enjoy. Some of my fondest memories celebrating the 4th of July during the 1980s involved traveling from our home in the San Francisco Bay Area to an amusement park called Marriott's Great America in Santa Clara, California. The park was about an hour's car ride north, and yet somehow my father always seemed to get us there in about 45 minutes. As we drove along the freeway in the Dodge Dart, I'd always spend the time riding in the back seat, looking out the window, convinced that every exit we were passing was the exit to lead us to Great America, and just filled with excitement about the rides that I wanted to go on, eating cotton candy and caramel apples, and testing my skills at winning a stuffed Bugs Bunny or Tasmanian Devil while playing midway games designed to take my money rather than reward my efforts. As a kid, I had no way of knowing how to accurately calculate the science and physics involved in tossing a three-inch plastic ring to land perfectly around the neck of a glass bottle 10 feet away, or using bean bags to knock down aluminum cans stacked in a pyramid on a pedestal about 20 feet away. I often wound up coming away irritated and with less cash and no stuffed animal wind to show for my effort, but it never stopped me from trying. Upon arriving and getting in line for parking, I was always taken aback at just how large and expansive the park was. I could see so many rides just towering high into the sky and they were ready to toss and turn and terrify park goers all day long. After my father paid the attendant for parking, 
he would hand the park map to me and ask, which ride did I want to go on first? Hmm. Would it be the demon, which was a quick, smooth steel roller coaster with two giant loops, a corkscrew and a tunnel with flashing lights that sprayed mist as the coaster went flying through it. Or maybe the Grizzly, which was a fast wooden coaster with sharp turns and drops all throughout and a beginning hill that was slow in climbing, but it built anticipation about that scary first drop that was just moments away. Whenever we went to amusement parks, my father would always be the one to ride the rides with me. Uh, He'd rest his hand on my knee during the ride, which as a kid always made me feel secure but in looking back, wouldn't have done much to restrain me if my safety harness or lap bar had actually come undone during the ride. There was just something comforting, though, about tossing my hands in the air and screaming in terror slash delight while riding roller coasters and thrill rides alongside my always-up-for-the-challenge father. My mother, on the other hand, she did not ride rides, and... It wasn't because she was fearful of the speed or going upside down or uh, the drops or the spins or anything like that. I honestly believe that it was because after all the energy and effort and time and dedication that she always put into her physical appearance, that there was no way she was going to consciously do anything that could possibly mess up her look like getting on a ride. She more so enjoyed browsing the shops and taking in the entertainment in the various themed areas within the park, like Hometown Square or Yukon Territory or the Orleans Place. Uh, She also would wait on a bench or near the exit of the ride for us to come out afterward. I do remember, though, one time, and one time only, it was the rare occasion where my mother and I rode a ride together at Great America. Uh, It was called the Lobster which was in the Yankee Harbor section of the park. Um, This is where they had like the log flume and other water rides. Um, The lobster was essentially a large uh, steel structure base that was positioned, it was positioned in the center of the ground um, of the ride area. And it had these six steel arms attached to it. At the end of each arm were four separate cars that were shaped like claws and they were painted bright orange. The ride would begin with the base structure rotating clockwise, which then caused the six arms to follow, uh, moving up and down as they began to spin in the same direction. Um, They didn't go very high, though. It it wasn't much higher than maybe 20, 25 feet. Um, And then that would cause each car on the end of the arm to independently spin as the steel arm that it was attached to went up and down and made the rotation of the the route of the ride. Um, Instead of my father's reassuring hand on my knee, um, during the lobster, I experienced my mother digging her fingernails into my leg and into my arm while screaming as she held on to me rather than the metal bar that was inside the car for support and for riders to hold on to. I just remember us laughing so hard because we were spinning so fast and the car just seemed so out of control and everything was flying by in a blur and seeing my dad watching from a spot near the exit, just shaking his head at the spectacle. (laughs) When the ride did finally come to a stop after about a minute and a half and we got off, my mother and I sort of stumbled through the exit toward my father and he said to her, so what's next? The demon? 
the best reason to go on July 4th for so many visitors, including our family, was the annual 4th of July fireworks show that the park put on after the sun went down and the sky became clear and dark. Uh, Once the show began, the sky was lit up with spectacular colors and designs, and the air was filled with the crackle and pounding of fireworks exploding in the sky. There was always a medley of patriotic songs and instrumental music that played during the show from speakers throughout the park um, as we celebrated the show and the holiday. I'll always remember the time that I spent visiting Great America during the 1980s with my family and my friends and just how innocent and incredible those times really were. Our theme this week is Independence Day. Whether it's due to creative differences, bad blood between bandmates, the pull of popular public opinion, or the desire to simply explore different artistic directions, artists sometimes risk the security that an established band or musical group provides in order to shine in the spotlight on their own. Our playlist includes songs from individual artists that during the 1980s made a declaration of independence from a proven musical act and ventured out seeking solo success. There may be no I in group, but there is an independent, so bid farewell to the other faces and names of the band and shine the spotlight on a single singer standing on the stage, because going forward, it's a one-person show. I've unwrapped another 60-minute blank Maxell audio cassette tape and placed it into the left side of the dual cassette tape player of my stereo system. I've pressed down the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to make another memorable mixtape filled with extraordinary 80s music. Out of respect for the copyright and creative process by the artists involved in all songs mentioned in the podcast, no music clips will be included. Instead, I'll use my commentary about the songs and encourage the listener to support music sites by authentically acquiring access to them. I'm prepared to start side A of the mixtape and have the first song ready, so I'll unpause the cassette player and begin our playlist with the first track. Track 1 was released in June of 1985 and peaked at number 3 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Sting, and the song is If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. I knew Sting as the lead singer of the incredibly successful band The Police before he went solo after the band decided to call it quits. I was just enamored, though, with his first solo album, The Dream of the Blue Turtles, because it didn't sound like anything that I was hearing on the radio at the time, and it didn't sound like anything that I had known The Police for in their previous records or albums. Uh, There was a display of jazz blended with rock uh, and an appreciation of a a variety of musical instruments from all over the world uh, and the sounds that came from them that I heard when I listened to that album. Um, I remember being captivated by it and consistently playing it on my turntable, uh, enjoying the songs Fortress Around Your Heart uh, and Love is the Seventh Wave. Uh, But there was something about Sting's voice that combined with the various instruments involved that just it made the album uh, just incredibly captivating and it it rose above some of the other artists and albums that were out around the same time 
for the song, If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free, there are so many facets of that song that I enjoy, uh, especially the intro, because it begins with the soft and subtle chant of free, free, set them free from the background singers while Sting ad-libs in between the chants. Um, This goes on for a few repetitions before the drums drop and the guitars kick in and Sting sings the opening verse, If you need somebody, call my name. While the chant of free, free, set them free lingers repetitively throughout his verses and the rest of the song. By the time that he reaches the first chorus, the horn section, the tambourine, a keyboard, and the unsung hero instrument of the decade, the saxophone, have layered in to create an undeniably feel-good, catchy groove. It's at this point, and for the rest of the song, that my feet are moving, my fingers are snapping along, my head is bobbing up and down and side to side, and my arms are swaying in the air, thanks to the heavy jazz and rock vibe that the music successfully balances with Sting's vocals. I remember when I first heard the song, I pretty much thought then and for a long time after that the interpretation of the lyrics were about embracing the courage and confidence within oneself to watch someone you love literally leave your life. Hence the title, If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. But years after, I really listened to the song, and having lived life a little beyond my then 12-year-old self, I no longer interpreted it as being about setting someone free from a relationship and then them walking out of your life. What I hear and what I see in the genius of Sting's lyrics are, yes, it's about embracing the courage and confidence within oneself, but using it to recognize any conscious or unconscious expectations or restrictions that are being projected onto another person and setting that person free from them. It's about loving someone for their individuality rather than curbing their potential or freedom of action or choice, either literally or figuratively. The lyrics sing, you can't control an independent heart and the background, uh, Lyrics are, can't love what you can't keep, can't tear the one you love apart, and the background, can't love what you can't keep, forever conditioned to believe that we can't live, we can't live here and be happy with less, with so many riches, so many souls, everything we see there we want to possess. My father had a million sayings that I heard during my youth and have carried throughout my life. One of them was, Are you looking at the likelihood of the outcome or at the limitations from the start? This was something that he said to me when I was nine and overthought joining a youth soccer league because of unwarranted self-doubt. And again, years later, when I was ready to self-defeat myself when applying for admission to colleges on the East Coast, I believe that in love and also in life, that placing limitations onto another person is just as equal to placing them onto oneself. And it's when a person fully realizes the gravity of living and loving without putting unmerited projections onto another is truly feeling free.
as if you love somebody, set them free by Sting fades out with the soothing sounds of the saxophone and Sting's vocals. I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track two was released in February of 1982 and peaked at number 11 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. The artist is Stevie Nicks and the song is Edge of 17. When I think of an artist who undoubtedly has lived the lyrics she's singing, it's almost impossible not to immediately visualize Stevie Nicks. As a member of the legendary band Fleetwood Mac, not to mention a respected and successful solo artist, she's someone who has the unique capacity to reach way down deep into the depths of her soul to show her spirit through song. Regardless of whether the song is a well-known or loved hit single or a deep album cut, a duet, or just a B-side, there's no mistaking how she conveys through her lyrics the many lives she's lived, the love she's lost, and the lessons learned along the way. I can hear the confidence and raw emotion as she attempts to provide reassurance while desperate as her relationship is falling apart in the song, Talk To Me. And I can also hear her magnificently convey understated sadness blended with longing and finding one's own strength in the song, Beauty and the Beast. Um, It's this raw emotional connection to her lyrics uh, that I hear as the intensity builds throughout the song, Edge of 17. The other component of the song keeping time with her commanding and gritty vocals is the adrenaline laden guitar riff that just kicks off the song and it doesn't let up just playing consistently throughout there were huge uh, pulsating powerful songs during the 1980s there were so many um like europe's uh, the final countdown or Uh, Survivor's Eye of the Tiger, which were significantly impactful. Um, But I would also place Edge of Seventeen right alongside those for its rock rhythm and hypnotic lyrics. It just has a, a style and a personality to it that is just unrelenting in parts. It just, it grabs you right from the start and it brings you along and it always feels as though the song is just a bit ahead of you, but you're never too far behind to keep up with it. The song was written as a reflection of sorrow and grief, uh, which I can hear when Stevie Nicks sings lyrics uh, such as, he was no more than a baby then, well, he seemed brokenhearted, something within him, but the moment that I first laid eyes on him, all alone on the edge of 17. But I also hear this unstoppable power later in the song, in the lyrics, the clouds never expect it when it rains, but the sea changes color, but the sea does not change. So worth the slow, graceful flow of age, I went forth with an age-old desire to please on the edge of 17. She cries out the lyric, um, on, on the edge of 17 in that part, really pronouncing and holding each syllable, uh, especially in the word 17, with just this ferocious um, intensity 
which is immediately followed with a soft ooh. It's almost like a like a she's taking a beat, like she, she's just taking a beat back, and then she reaches way down deep in the in the depths of her soul for another immediate emotive ooh and it's just raw it's it's this like this punch where it's just like ooh it that it doesn't sound like that that was horrible but it's unbelievable just that section um this is my favorite section of the song because it just demonstrates what i admire and enjoy about stevie nicks um which is her ability to convey this effortless authenticity using her talent um, as a singer and a songwriter. It's just, it's such an impressive catalog of music that she has put out for everyone to live their life through and listen to and understand the lyrics that she has clearly lived and has given to us to listen to. As Edge of Seventeen by Stevie Nicks fades out with its pumping guitar riff, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 3 was released in November of 1984 and peaked at number 18 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Steve Perry, and the song is Foolish Heart. Steve Perry is one of the greatest male vocalists in rock and roll to have ever picked up a mic, opened his mouth, and just bestowed upon us his phenomenal singing talent. There's no vocal runs, uh, no unnecessary ad-libbing, no theatrics, um, nothing to distract from just his pure singing. Um, He doesn't need any of that. Um, It's just his voice. As the lead singer of the band Journey, his vocals provided the fuel that delivered so many incredible ballads and ageless rock anthems during the 1970s and 80s. When he put out his debut solo record called Street Talk, uh, my father gave my sister a copy because it had the song Oh Sherry, which was the lead single from the album on it. And it was quite popular at the time. And... Of course, my sister's name was Sherry, so um, she loved hearing it in a song sung from the voice of Steve Perry. While I liked the song too, uh, my favorite on the album was Foolish Heart. There was just something so mature and stripped back about that song that uh, caught and kept my attention. In the song, Steve Perry is having a heart-to-heart talk with his own heart about the apprehension and caution anyone would feel about following their heart and falling in love. You can hear how vulnerable and sincere he sounds when he's singing the lyrics, um, I need a love that's strong. I'm so tired of being alone. But will my lonely heart play the part of the fool again before I begin foolish heart? Hear me calling. Stop before you start falling. Foolish heart, heed my warning. You've been wrong before. Don't be wrong anymore. Growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the main popular radio stations that people listened to was called KFRC. 
Um, now they mostly played current and classic rock artists um, at the time. And by classic, I mean artists and songs from the 70s, which since we were living in the 1980s, wasn't exactly that far in the past to be considered classic, but there it was. Um, anyway, they also played some light FM and soft rock, which was a great way to hear artists like Christopher Cross or Dan Fogelberg in between tracks by Foreigner and Cheap Trick. I remember for a few years in the middle of the 1980s, they had a few promotional commercials for uh, KFRC that aired on the three major networks. Um, this would have been uh, Channel 4, which was NBC, Channel 5, which was CBS, and Channel 7, which was ABC, um, which was a few years before Fox came along, which would then become Channel 2. Um, Fox came along in right around the middle of 1987, and it had just a handful of shows on it, like Married with Children and The Tracy Ullman Show and 21 Jump Street. Um, and my personal favorite, um, which was incredibly ahead of its time, uh, a TV show called Werewolf, which was on Saturday nights. Um, the commercials, though, for KFRC used uh, popular images of the city of San Francisco as a backdrop including cars and pedestrians navigating along Golden Gate Bridge, the sun setting over Fisherman's Wharf, people roller skating and biking through Golden Gate Park, and the Painted Ladies, which if you're not familiar with that name, uh, they're the series of Victorian houses that are all in a row that you can see in various movies and especially in the opening credits for the TV series Full House. Incidentally, our house was not in this part of the city, uh, especially not with the costs associated with living in that area. I mean, after all, my parents ran a record shop that sustained living um, middle class comfortably. It certainly didn't afford us the opportunity to live uh, painted ladies comfortably. <laughs> anyway, the station used the song by Journey called Lights during the commercial, and they changed the chorus at the end. Um, of course, the chorus goes, when the lights go down in the city and the sun shines on the bay, ooh, I want to be there in my city. Um, and then it goes into, you know, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> but instead of doing that, the last verse uh, dragged out the call letters for the radio station. So it went K-F-R-C-E-E. And it was as awkward as I just sang it when you heard it in the commercial. Um, and I remember whenever the commercial would air, my father would grab the remote control and click the TV to any other channel. And he would shake his head and say, I thought only Barry Manilow was doing TV jingles. As Foolish Heart by Steve Perry fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 4 was released in May of 1988 and did not chart on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Morrissey, and the song is Every Day is Like Sunday. I can remember discovering the band The Smiths when I was in junior high school thanks to my friend Kelly, who put the tape of their album, The Queen is Dead, into my Sony Walkman at lunchtime and pushed the play button. 
I was instantly fascinated with Morrissey's voice and his enunciation of words and just how different and defiant everything sounded with his delivery, um, including the lyrics uh, to the music that was accompanying them. I listened repeatedly to that tape, um, eventually getting my own copy, as well as um, the band's other albums from my father. Um, Kelly and I had had a few classes together in school, um, like our homeroom, um, U.S. history, and P.E., and when possible, we would always talk about music that we liked and the classmates that we didn't. Um, we'd always hang out at lunchtime and you know, along with our other mutual friends, share Capri Suns, cassette tapes, and a new snack at the time called Cool Ranch Doritos. I remember Kelly was one of uh, the few of my friends that had heard of and was watching 120 Minutes on MTV and she knew all about artists like Susie and the Banshees, the Jesus and Mary Chain, and the Replacements. Um, 120 Minutes was a show that aired Saturday nights, um, just after midnight. So technically, it was Sunday morning, um, but it showed what was considered punk rock, um, alternative, goth, and college rock music videos for about two hours. Um, this was a chance to see and hear artists that weren't played uh, any other time during the week. Um, that that time frame was dedicated to the other array of artists that were radio friendly or that were more pop um, centric like Bon Jovi and Debbie Gibson and Rick Springfield. Um, eventually Kelly's family wound up moving to Southern California at the end of the school year. And though we didn't stay in touch, uh, I'd like to think that we were both watching episodes of 120 minutes at the same time, but just in different places in the state um, during the remainder of the decade. I remember when the Smiths broke up um, and Morrissey put out his glorious debut album, Viva Hate. Um, I tried to engage my friends the same way that uh, Kelly and I had um, talked about songs and artists that were um, a little off the popular path, um, but their tastes reflected what was popular at the time in 1988. So things like hair metal, rap music, and pop rock were were just really dominating um, the music scene. Um, but there I was stating that while I thought every day is like Sunday had a dreamy sound quality because of the music, um, that the lyrics painted a dismissive and dreary view about a person being so bored with their surroundings that they're wishing for anything, even something as horrible as Armageddon or nuclear bombs to occur and break up their day. I also believe that the song can be interpreted as commentary. Um, that the coastal town Morrissey is singing about had perhaps been spared of a recent nuclear attack when other areas outside of it weren't as fortunate um, just due to the lyrics like everything is silent and gray and in the seaside town that they forgot to bomb. Um, I would also casually mention that Morrissey and I shared the same birthday uh, to my friends, but it didn't seem to make the impact that I expected since, again, none of them really listened to or knew his music at the time. Believe it or not, there was a time, in fact, when shops and businesses remained closed on Sundays, 
and the areas that they inhabited became somewhat of a ghost town. I can remember the shops, including ours, around Union Square and the theater district that sold everything from jewelry and books to furniture and groceries or specialty items, or that offered services like uh, locksmiths, shoe repair, uh, tailoring, things like that. Uh, they were closed on Sundays, um, along with some restaurants and, and coffee shops and, and other businesses. Um, the choices available on Sundays were mainly the shops or vendors within Chinatown or the tourist shops that stretched along Fisherman's Wharf down to Ghirardelli Square. Um, they, they were always open for visitors to buy souvenir t-shirts, um, postcards, coffee mugs, or any of their various items to purchase and take back home as a memory of their trip to the San Francisco Bay Area. As every day is like Sunday by Morrissey fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 5 was released in April of 1985 and peaked at number 1 for one week on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Phil Collins and the song is Susudio. The summer of 1981 was quite eventful for me. Not only did my family get to attend the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, thanks to our TV set, but literally just a few days later, a brand new 24-hour cable music channel was made available to watch, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. The channel, of course, was MTV. And I remember my older sister Sherry and I staying up late to watch the launch of the channel, which didn't debut until after midnight. Moments before the programming was set to start, our TV screen had those large color bars or blocks on it um, and no sound as we waited for the channel to launch. And before we knew it, the screen changed to footage of a giant rocket ship preparing for takeoff. We listened and watched excitedly as the command center counted down and sent it into outer space, followed by an astronaut that upon arrival on the moon planted a flag with the MTV logo onto the surface. Seconds later, the music video of the Buggles song, Video Killed the Radio Star, began, which was genius as a first choice for a music video. Uh, and it was a song in a group that I was unfamiliar with. For the next couple of hours, we sat there falling in and out of sleep on the couch as the five VJs introduced themselves and talked about the different music videos that they were showing from artists like Pat Benatar and The Pretenders. Uh, and in between videos, there were segments with them about news, about musicians and bands, and commentary on the music industry in general. Um, and you could just you could you could just tell how new this format was. It was just unpolished and organic, um, and it reminded me of um, the public access channels that we had um, with the VJs talking directly to you. Uh, about living their life in New York City, and they took shots of the um, outside area of the studio and the the streets and such around um, where MTV was located, and you could just see the um, realism and the grit of New York City, which reminded me a lot of my area in San Francisco. It was just um, it was just a real city that had a lot of um, charm and 
um, character to it, but could also be very scary at the same time, at least in those days. I remember my sister also telling me a couple of times that uh, VJ Mark Goodman was not the same actor that played Bruno in the movie Fame um, because all I saw was his curly hair and his facial features and I immediately thought he was Bruno from Fame. MTV quickly grew into a phenomenon, of course, and record companies started putting money into promoting their artists and videos became more expensive and there were memorable music videos made that helped to solidify the channel and give it a face and also create images for artists like Madonna, Michael and Janet Jackson, um, and Duran Duran, so that viewers at home um, could witness um, this all, you know, come from something that uh, started small, but then just became this massive um, monumental experience. I remember watching MTV after school and on the weekends, hoping to see videos by musicians that I liked, but having to wait while videos from artists that either I just didn't care about or just wasn't interested in hearing played. Um, I can remember kids at school talking about AHA's groundbreaking music video for the song Take On Me, but whenever I turned on uh, MTV, I seemed to either catch the very end of the video or the uh, VJs would always say, you know, it was coming up and then it would seem to never come up. Now, if you missed the video, it meant that you would have to cycle through a bunch of other videos before they would replay it. And one of the first videos I remember seeing um, on MTV the night that my sister and I stayed up to watch the, the launch of it was Phil Collins' um, eerie presence in the video for the song In the Air Tonight, which in and of itself is um, an eerie song. Um, I remember thinking that after the Buggles and Pat Benatar and the Pretenders, how not like a traditional rock star Phil Collins looked, but that MTV was, you know, celebrating and, um, acknowledging rock and musicians, you know, in different forms, and they had room for everyone that was making music and the image of what someone looked like and, um, the personality and all of that behind them and their, their sort of character hadn't really uh, been a thing at that point. So it was really all about the talents and all about the music, but Phil Collins looked like my teacher or my dad, the, well, not my dad specifically, but he had the physical appearance of what the dads in my neighborhood at the time looked like with, um, you know, when hairlines start to recede and uh, the beginnings of what we now know as a dad bod start to form. Um, there was definitely no mistaking him for Billy Idol. During the 80s, though, Phil Collins successfully split his time between collaborations with the band Genesis and creating solo albums for himself with stylized love ballads and enjoyable up-tempo songs. Um, I, I am a fan of Phil Collins' music, especially during the 1980s. There was There was such diversity to it, and he used so many different live instruments um, involving keyboards and horns, guitars, drum machines, just such a variety that complemented his voice. Um, he's known for a lot of the balladry that he put out during the decade, but one of my favorite songs by him is the up-tempo song, Susudio. Um, this one always got people moving when it was played at a school dance or it 
just came on like in a store when we were in the mall. Um, just the song's pounding drum machine beat mixed with the synthesizer and the horns creates this funky rhythm that I can't believe I'm saying funky rhythm along with Phil Collins, but it just works with his energetic vocals during this song. It's just such a simple song about having a crush on someone, but being too shy to act on it. Um, throughout the song, he sings lyrics about a girl um, that's been on his mind all the time. She doesn't even know his name, but he thinks she likes her just the same. But she, he thinks she likes him just the same. Um, apparently, the name Susudia was just gibberish, and it was made up by Phil Collins during his creative process, which in keeping with my thoughts on him, seems in line with something that a dad would do. As the studio by Phil Collins fades out, I'll press stop on the cassette player and eject the tape to inside A. We're halfway there. I flip the tape over and press the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to start side B. Track one was released in December of 1987 and peaked at number one for two weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is George Michael, and the song is Father Figure. It's my opinion that the 1980s was the last decade that really saw a variety of musicians release an album that became popular with the public, which resulted in a number of singles getting released from the album, getting airplay, charting on the Billboard charts, and music videos being made. Albums like Def Leppard's Hysteria, Michael Jackson's Thriller and Bad, uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, Janet Jackson's Control. Uh, These albums come to mind when I think about just how concise and tight the albums were. Um, There really was no filler or songs that sounded out of place or just like they were thrown in to flesh out an album or get a guaranteed hit. And it always astonished me when yet another song from an album that had been released the year prior was still seeing sales and it was on its fifth or sixth or even seventh single off of that album. Speaking about this phenomenon, George Michael's album Faith also comes to mind. The album produced six top five singles with four of them reaching the number one spot on the Hot 100 chart. In this time, George Michael was just such a rival to what we saw Michael Jackson doing on the charts and in music videos and just in popular culture. Uh, George Michael really, really rose and reinvented himself. It was um, just after the time that Wham! called it quits. Uh, He established himself as a solo artist and did a complete overhaul of his physical appearance. Uh, Gone was the baby fat, the big flowing hair, and the loose-fitting clothes that had been associated with him earlier in the decade. Instead, uh, George Michael emerged in 1987 with Ray-Bans, a leather jacket, fitted jeans, and a tightly trimmed scruffy beard that did more to enhance his chiseled cheekbones than diminish them. The verses of the song Father Figure have a sensual, almost uh, breathy R&B feel to them. Um, The lyrics uh, for just one moment, 
to be bold and naked at your side, or if you ever hunger, hunger for me, um, sounded explicit for the time, um, but they weren't outright vulgar. They weren't indecent. Um, and there was just something smooth about his delivery that, um, again, just had that, that R and B feel to it, that, that relaxed, um, sensuality. Um, my favorite part though, is the contrast between the verses and the chorus when the music, it changes from a subtle melody of piano and guitar to a more sophisticated pulsing drum beat when the chorus kicks in. And it just links perfectly with um, his soulful lyrics when he goes into the chorus and, and it sings, I will be your father figure, put your tiny hand in mine. I will be your preacher teacher, anything you have in mind. I will be your father figure. I have had enough of crime. I will be the one who loves you till the end of time. This is backed by perfect pop gospel voices that clearly and precisely support uh, George Michael's passionate declaration. And it just produces chills with every listen. Um, this is just an amazingly well-crafted song. As Father Figure by George Michael ends, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 2 was released in May of 1986 and peaked at number 3 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Belinda Carlisle, and the song is Mad About You. As I had previously mentioned in my Sounds of Summer episode, a lifelong crush developed on Belinda Carlisle in the early 1980s when my father took me to a Go-Go's concert. When the band decided to call it quits a few years later, I was thrilled when she returned to the radio and MTV a few years after that, this time as a solo artist. Uh, her debut album, Belinda, is filled with songs that just radiate a relaxed Southern California vibe. Uh, that was really popular at the time in the mid 80s and uh, it just had uh, an inspiration and influence throughout the album of 60s girl groups uh, doo-wop um, that wall of sound feel um, and a solid cover of frida Payne's song band of gold uh, this was all a uh, new sound for belinda carlisle and it suited her transformation from sort of a uh, punk rock um, new wave popular artist as the Go-Go's had transitioned themselves in the earlier part of the decade to um, more of a um, solo artist who was not only finding her way but also confident and capable in the material that she was singing and presenting to the audience. Um, the song Mad About You just sounds like summertime to me. It it perfectly captures that simplicity involved in falling in love with another person. Um, the lyrics of the chorus are mad about you, lost in your eyes, reason aside, mad about love, mad about you, you and I. Her voice is just infectious throughout the song. Um, she's just joyfully singing the lyrics. She's, um, it's as though she has a smile on her face and she's, um, wanting to share the exuberance that she's feeling within the song with the listener. Um, I love the lyrics uh, in the second verse. 
where she sings something about you right here beside me touches that touched part of me like I can't believe again it goes along with that theme of uh, just finding and falling for someone who just turns your world upside down and all those quirks and things about you that you either try to hide or um, not reveal um, somebody else sees them and they get them they're they're enamored by and they are um, in love with um, everything about you and it's just it's telling when I listen to this song I can just hear it in her voice I remember um, when VH1 was a new music channel um, as an alternative to MTV they played the video for uh, Mad About You all the time and you could just see it in her face she's on the beach she's in a car she's in a house just dancing around and being energetic and enthusiastic and really uh, conveying without overdoing it the um, jubilance that she's feeling um, from the lyrics that she's singing in this song. I did of course also notice that uh, similar to George Michael's physical transformation after he left Wham, Belinda Carlisle uh, was noticeably uh, slimmer and displayed uh, sort of a natural surfer girl look. Um, she had this playful blonde haircut and uh, minimal makeup, um, which really emphasized uh, the beauty and the look of the California girl that um, I had grown up seeing and several of the girls that I went to school with and that hung out at the beach and that I saw on the regular um, they were all sort of emulating Belinda Carlisle or she emulating them. But in all, it was a look that worked and it was a look that definitely transformed her from being the lead singer of the Go-Go's and into someone who was creating a um, solo career for her own. As Mad About You by Belinda Carlisle fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 3 was released in October of 1988 and peaked at number 1 for one week on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Bobby Brown, and the song is My Prerogative. To their credit, the members of New Edition all saw varying levels of success after the demise of the group. You had Ralph Tresvant uh, with You Need a Man with Sensitivity, A Man Like Me. Uh, Johnny Gill with My, 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 You Sure Look Good Tonight. And of course, Belle Biv DeVoe with That Girl Is Poison. Never trust a big button to smile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all had memorable songs, of course, and videos, which three of them I just botched. So please forgive me. Um, during the late 80s and into the early 90s, but it was Bobby Brown that definitely saw the biggest and most impactful success happen after he released the album Don't Be Cruel. This is, again, one of those albums that spawned hit after hit after hit song. And it was just unstoppable over such a long period of time. 
Um, it included the title track, the song Roni, the song Rock Witcha, and my favorite, Every Little Step. Um, however, it was the incredibly catchy and defiant anthem, My Prerogative, that reached number one and sent Bobby Brown skyrocketing as a solo artist. Now, the, right from the beginning with this song, from the screeching tires that started to the fantastic percussion, incredible bass line, and the unmistakable New Jack sound that was so fresh at the time, it just carries it throughout and, and lets it be known that this is a song that, much like the singer, demanded to be heard. Uh, Bobby Brown had angered many fans when he left New Edition and was attempting to make it on his own as a solo artist. So this was his um, rebuttal, if you will, where he was letting them know um, his thoughts and um, how he felt about the expectations that were being projected onto him as an artist and um, the stifling or the limitations that he was experiencing while in a group and wanting to branch out on his own. Um, but this is definitely the song that comes to mind when I think of Bobby Brown around the latter part of the 1980s. Um, just his charisma, the confidence, the the attitude and the the swag, everything was just on display. Um, surprisingly, um, without appearing arrogant or overly full of himself, it was it was so celebratory and so infectious to see. Um, after he had this breakthrough, there was definitely no denying his individual talent um, or his stage presence as a performer. Um, I remember when the song would come on at the uh, dances that used to fill the dance floor. Um, Well-dressed guys, beautiful girls, everybody had the latest dance moves that we were trying to uh, emulate and impress each other with. Um, and then, of course, everybody belting out the chorus everybody's talking all this stuff about me. Why don't they just let me live? I don't need permission. Make my own decisions. That's my prerogative. I'm pretty sure that at some point, I also had to look up the word prerogative in the dictionary because I don't think I had heard it before or at least paid attention to it. But I did find that unlike susudio, it is a real word. As My Prerogative by Bobby Brown fades out, with Bobby telling us that he made this money and we didn't, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the next song. Track 4 was released in August of 1983 and peaked at number 1 for 4 weeks on the US Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Lionel Richie, and the song is All Night Long, All Night. Lionel Richie had achieved immediate success upon leaving the Commodores and venturing out on his own with his debut record, but it was his follow-up album, Can't Slow Down, that further solidified him as an amazing and just incredibly talented singer and respected songwriter. You're going to want to add this album into those from the 1980s that spawned numerous hit singles and dominated the charts for quite a period of time. The album's first single was the instantly warm and joyous and just wonderful party song, All Night Long, which was played at every barbecue or outdoor gathering or reception that I went to 
during the mid to about the latter part of the 1980s, uh, the song starts off with the richness of Lionel Richie's voice announcing to the listeners that the time's come. It's time to celebrate, raise the roof, sing, dance, and just have a wonderful time together. Um, the The music of the the song is also what really stands out along with his vocals. He's backed with a calypso percussion beat um, and Caribbean instrumentation that represents uh, various steel and uh, uh, brass um, instruments playing throughout the song, along with guitar and piano and keyboard. Um, he continues with my favorite part, which is the pre-chorus of the song, uh, which the lyrics go, we're going to party, karamu, fiesta, forever, come on and sing along which he repeats twice before the actual chorus of all night long, all night, all night long, all night kicks in. Uh, and then the guitars and the horns join in to just create this celebratory sound. So I love how the song builds from the very beginning where it starts off a little quieter with just his voice, um, you know, commanding now my friends, the time has come you know, and he's telling everybody to just put the work away and um, let's look forward to moving into a sort of celebratory atmosphere. Um, and then he goes into that pre-chorus and then he just lets it all, you know, just become loose with the actual chorus. Um, I remember the music video, which got a lot of airplay on um, the music stations where everybody in the video comes out from the sides of uh, like a makeshift building um, or houses. And as Lionel Richie's making his way around the um, street, if you will. Uh, and they start to feel this energy um, of the song while he's uh, singing and projecting out to them to come on out and, you know, come together and be together. And slowly people start to move and dance both individually and then with one another and then just collectively as a whole. And it's just such a snapshot in time where I was um, 11 years old and I knew these people in the video. There were people of different ages. You saw young kids, you saw older, um, you know, men and women who had lived long lives at that point. You saw, you know, middle-aged people, you saw young uh, teenagers, you saw people of different ethnicities, some that were um, obvious um, to me and some that were unfamiliar. You saw cultures being represented in either the um, clothing or appearance um, that the dancers and that the people in the music video uh, were wearing, including their um, hairstyles and um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Clothing is not the right word, but um, the what was representational to specific cultures that was used in the video that I was unfamiliar with, but that piqued an interest to become familiar with. Um, you saw different races and genders just connecting through their smiles um, the art of dance and movement, and feeling the joyous rhythm of this song 
And then at the end of the video, everybody slowly makes their way back inside their makeshift buildings and houses as Lionel Richie dances away. Um, the song just always reminds me to enjoy life and stop and celebrate. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be work to do. Um, that'll always be there, but you have to take the opportunity to stand in the sunlight and just smile and let your body move, especially when the magic of this song is ready to wash all over you. As All Night Long by Lionel Richie fades out, I'll press pause on the cassette player and prepare the final song on the playlist. Our final track was released in December of 1987 and peaked at number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is David Lee Roth, and the song is Just Like Paradise. I don't know that I had ever seen anyone really with as much natural charisma uh, and charm as David Lee Roth displayed during the 1980s. I mean, as the frontman of the group Van Halen, he just demonstrated this incredible stage presence uh, in videos like Panama and Hot for Teacher, Jump. He just proved that he could sing and dance and engage with an audience um, just in such a, such a celebratory fashion that you, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. I mean, there was such a, such a entertainment value that he had. Um, and he was such a showman, always smiling and laughing and, uh, showing he had a sense of humor and, and didn't take himself or the environment that he was in, in the music business so seriously. And the, the energetic performances that he put on just demonstrated that. And you could just feel um, that he was somebody that you wanted to see succeed and you wanted to enjoy the music that he was putting out because he was singing for everyone. When he went solo, <laughs> which when Van Halen and David Lee Roth parted, uh, he did release some solo records. And one of the songs that he released that um, I really like is Just Like Paradise. And I feel like that that would be an appropriate closer for this playlist. It just has this incredible guitar uh, that it opens with. And it really allows the uh, opportunity for that instrument to just breathe and just play on. And you just, you hear the, the magnificent showmanship of the guitar as it's playing through right before David Lee Roth comes in and starts singing. It's just such a generous intro. Um, and then of course his unmistakable vocals come in. One of the elements of the song that I really like is just very simple. It's the chorus um, it's literally, this must be just like living in paradise and I don't want to go home. Um, my favorite part of course is at the end of the song, which sounds terrible because it's the end of the song, but I love how the music starts to fade out and it gets, um, more silent as the voices, um, still continue. And, uh, it's just the chorus repeated acapella. So you just hear, this must be just like living in paradise and I don't want to go home. 
for several um, repetitions before it finally fades and it's finally done. Um, it just resonates with me, especially when I reflect on all the memories that I made and shared throughout the 1980s with my family, my friends, um, those closest to me, just um, the experience in general. And, you know, living in the 1980s really was just like living in paradise. And if you were there and you lived in or you lived through the decade, it goes without saying. Uh, we hadn't seen anything like it before and nothing has come close since. And we did it. We've completed our fifth podcast playlist mixtape. I'll go ahead and press stop and eject our tape. I'm going to label it and put it into our cassette tape holder and we're all set. I hereby make the declaration that anyone celebrating the 4th of July holiday enjoys a day filled with family and friends, great times together, and fun and fireworks. Well, my friends, the time has come to raise the roof and have some fun. Throw away the work to be done. Let the music play on, play on, play on, play on. I hope that you've enjoyed this experience as much as I have bringing it to you, and that you'll continue to listen and support. So until we meet again, this has been Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. Enjoy!